National Catholic Register. This is Register Radio, bringing light and clarity to the news and topics that affect your life. The U.S. bishops met this week to choose new leaders for their conference and discuss key priorities for the church in America, including life issues after Dobbs, synod on synodality, and marriage catechumenate. EW10 News was on the ground reporting from the event. Uh, the registers Loretta Brown and Jonathan Little join us now with their takeaways. They join us from the conference itself uh, on day two. I'm Jeanette DeMello, Editor-in-Chief and Executive Director of the National Catholic Register and host of Register Radio. I'm joined by my co-host, EW10 News' Executive Director, Matthew Bunsen, and Matthew is also on the ground in Baltimore. Hi, Matthew. Great to be with you. It's, it's, it's been a great a couple of days with uh, the whole team here, especially Loretta uh, and Jonathan. Yes, I, I, I was going to mention that CNA has a, an army on the ground, it seems. They've got a handful <laughs> of people um, who've been covering it and really um, putting out a lot of, uh, of, of stories on, on each event, kind of as it happens, which has really been wonderful for, for both of our teams. That gives Loretta and Jonathan the chance to do analysis and longer stories. Um, but I really wanted to ask you first, before we get um, started with Loretta and Jonathan, uh, what the mood is like on the ground. I mean, you've been attending these conferences um, for, for many years. This is their general assembly. The fall assembly is usually open to the public, or, or the press at least, <laughs> um, with you know accredited press. So what's the mood? Yeah, I, I think uh, the bishops uh, have settled into uh, frank and open discussions, but uh, none of the sort of rancor that we've seen uh, in some ways uh, in the last year. We certainly, the, the contentious public debates that took place uh, in uh, last in June of last year, and even to some degree November of last year, uh, the closed executive sessions on Monday, uh, where the bishops have had a chance to spend the day together in prayer and, and discussion and dialogue, I think have worked really well. Uh, in helping them reach a kind of consensus about where a lot of these uh, major issues need to go. And, and that's played out pretty well, I think. There have been some really intense moments. I, I'm reminded especially of uh, Archbishop Boris Gudziak's appeal for uh, Ukraine, uh, as well as uh, some of the other discussions we've had here. But the, the bishops overall, I think, seem very relaxed. It's been quite interesting to watch. It's nice not to have it filled with heat. Um, so, uh, so I want to bring Loretta on. Uh, Loretta Brown is a is a writer for the Register who lives in Washington, works out of Washington, but uh, Baltimore is just a, a jump away. And and so, Loretta, you've been to many of these meetings now over the years. So you're one of the veterans on the ground with <laughs> EWTN News team. Um, you covered the elections for us. Um, uh, how was it? I mean, outgoing uh, president was Archbishop Gomez. He served for three years. Uh, typically, the vice president takes over. That was Archbishop Alan Vigneron of, of Detroit, but he's going to turn 75 within this term, so he wasn't eligible uh, to become president. Um, so it made it a more interesting election. And, of course, it was Archbishop uh, Timothy Broglio, uh, Broglio, excuse me. It was Archbishop Timothy Broglio of the Archdiocese for Military Services that was elected president. Uh, was this a close election? Um, and and who, who is he? You know, ultimately, it wasn't so close. There were a couple rounds of voting, but I think pretty early on it became clear um, Archbishop Broglio was the front runner. And I think even in discussions beforehand, 
Um, he, you know, he seemed to be a, a very popular choice. Um, even, you know, the last USCCB election for president, he ended up being, you know, the secretary, so kind of the third in command there. And so I've, I've been hearing a lot of excitement um, over his election. It seems like a lot of bishops really like him and appreciate his work over the years. Um, you know, he served the conference in, in a variety of ways, different committees. He's spoken out a lot on religious freedom. And I think one thing I've noticed, too, is I think with his work with the Archdiocese for Military Services, he's really connected with a lot of people. He, he knows a lot of people in, in different dioceses. And so I think overall it was, it was smooth. It was, you know, kind of a, a popular choice from what I can tell. Yes, and then the election of the vice president was Archbishop William Laurie of Baltimore. Uh, he's no stranger to the register. Uh, I mean, he's he's been on register radio um, at, at various times, but he was the first head of the U.S. Bishops Committee on Religious Freedom, and that that's kind of how we got to know him so well in the registers pages and and here. Um, what can you tell us about Archbishop Laurie's election? Well, it was honestly kind of a surprise to me in the sense that I just wasn't sure who would <laughs> who would be in the vice president position. And one interesting thing about that, too, is he's also um, too old to just go ahead and be president in a few more years, right? So um, so that's the issue with Archbishop Vigneron, that he you know wasn't the correct age to, <laughs> to go on and, um, and be president, because typically the, the vice president will just then be elected president. So that's kind of an interesting thing to note is that um, they're going to have to do kind of a clean slate election again next time around. With Archbishop Laurie, um, I think it seems like, he, yeah, he knows a lot of bishops and he's done a lot of good work in, in these different areas. And it, it was interesting, too, his election <laughs> precipitated the need for more elections because he had just been... Um, you know, put in place the pro-life committee, which is a, a big deal right now, obviously, given the post-Obs climate. They had to hold a, another election for the pro-life committee chair, um, and Bishop Burbich was just elected for that. That was interesting. Let's bring Jonathan in for a minute here. And, and Jonathan, related to uh, the elections, uh, do you have any an analysis or, or takeaways from that whole process and uh, and who was elected? Yeah, I think something people have been monitoring and trying to assess is what, what's the current kind of breakdown of the theological views and emphases of the bishops in the U.S. Conference. Uh, we have uh, Cardinal Tobin and we have Cardinal Supich, who are on the dicastery for bishops, so influential in appointing or recommending to Pope Francis those who will be made bishops or those who will be moved to important sees. So there's a sense that um, bishops who might share some of their theological uh, perspectives might be um, increasingly more common on the conference. So a lot of these elections were opportunities to kind of sort of assess, like, as much as we can, see where different people are at. So I think it is interesting to note uh, that Archbishop Paul Achen from Seattle, who's generally um, considered to be a bishop who, whose theological views are are aligned um, with, with Cardinal Tobin and Cardinal Stupich and others who, who share their emphases, he received in the vote for president, uh, the most votes he received on that second ballot was 37 votes. Uh, and then also in uh, the vice president's election on the second ballot, uh, he received 37 votes as well. So uh, we, we could speculate uh, maybe, maybe there was a sense in which bishops knew that he didn't have enough votes. And so, um, you know, 37 might have voted for him, and there are more who might have been later. I think actually an interesting one to look at uh, is the vote for secretary. 
um, which is where, uh, you know, the secretary position at the Bishop's Conference is very important. It's the head of the Planning and Priorities Committee, uh, which is a very influential mm-hmm. committee for the Bishop's Conference, just kind of setting the agenda, nominating different candidates for some of these positions as well. And because Archbishop Broglio was the secretary coming into the conference or to this assembly, when he was elected, they needed to elect uh, someone else. So uh, that uh, election, we saw Cardinal uh, Tobin from Newark, New Jersey, um, was was sort of pitted against or was running against uh, Archbishop Coakley from Oklahoma City. So two, you know, bishops that you could say maybe maybe have some some different emphases. And we saw uh, in that vote um, that Cardinal, excuse me, Archbishop Coakley, uh, you know, prevailed 130 uh, to 104. Um, so I don't know. We, you know, we're kind of reading tea leaves here and trying to, like, <laughs> read into some of these votes and make a sense of where the, um, the, where the kind of the current makeup of the bishops' conferences and some of these issues. Um, so for whatever that's worth, that's, that's maybe something to monitor or something to see what we can glean from it. Yeah, and this is uh, for, for Jonathan and Loretta. Please feel free to jump in, too. The the way that the, some of these votes for the additional committee chairs hand out uh, with Bishop Burbage winning his committee as pro-life and, and Bishop Rhodes winning his committee uh, for religious liberty, both of those, notably, were candidates to be president. So are we seeing a slate here of the bishops who had already voted on them also putting their trust in them as committee chairs? And what is, in a way, what does that tell us about the bench of the bishops? Yeah, and I to jump in, Bishop Burbage, the Bishop of Arlington, being elected uh, to the to chair the pro-life committee. I thought that was interesting because, uh, you know, Archbishop Laurie, who had been head of the pro-life committee until his election to vice presidency, he's been really emphasizing uh, the bishop's approach in the aftermath of uh, Roe being overturned, and he's been emphasizing radical solidarity. So this move to to help make abortion unthinkable by supporting women, children, and families. And I think Bishop Burbage, you know, will certainly carry that mantle forward. But it's also worth noting that that he, as the the bishop of Arlington, has been very outspoken uh, against the the Biden presidency's support of extreme abortion measure, measures. So I think. The bishops, you know, knowing that about him, knowing that that's already an emphasis of him and him willing to confront the president uh, when he promotes um, abortion policies, uh, seems to be an indication that the, the bishops, yes, they want to move forward with radi- radical solidarity, and yes, they want to, to emphasize different ways we can uh, promote economic policies, family-friendly policies, and all these kinds of different areas to help women choose life. There's a back down. Uh, from from preventing the the expansion of the abortion regime. So this topic of um, post Dobbs is something that I want to talk uh, further about with um, with all of you. We've been talking to Matthew Bunsen, to Jonathan Liedel, and Loretta Brown about the U.S. bishops meeting that's taking place in Baltimore right now. We're going to take a short break. Uh, and we will continue this conversation and talk about the bishop's priorities post-Dobbs uh, after this short break. This is Register Radio on EWTN. There's more when we return.
Bishop James Conley talks about the National Catholic Register. I've been reading the Register for over 40 years, and I can tell people with absolute conviction that it's the best periodical out there. They're honest, they're true, and they give a great perspective. It's important to be able to have a news source like the National Catholic Register where we can go to and make sense and decipher what's going on around us. It also engages the imagination. If you really want to be an informed Catholic, you got to read the National Catholic Register. To get six free issues, order online at ncregister.com forward slash radio or call 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. That's ncregister.com forward slash radio or 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. While you're waiting on your first issue, be sure to enjoy our content online. The National Catholic Register. Read faithfully. Let's return to Register Radio on EWTN. Welcome back. I'm Jeanette DeMello, Executive Director of the National Catholic Register, and I'm joined by my co-host, Matthew Bunsen. And we are joined also by our colleagues, Loretta Brown and Jonathan Liedel. Matthew, Loretta, and Jonathan are all at the bishops' meeting this week in Baltimore. We're talking on day two, so Wednesday, about uh, the open sessions uh, and... We have a couple more days of the conference, but we do know what is was happening those days. Uh, we want to focus um, in in this part of the show on um, one big thing for for most many Americans, and that is um, uh, life after Roe, uh, uh, you know, life after Dobbs, however you want to put it. And uh, and the bishops did speak about that uh, this week, uh, Loretta. I know. Uh, that you had many conversations with bishops, um, just one-on-one in, in your interviews on this topic. Uh, but but first, let's um, talk about how that presented itself in the bishop's agenda. Loretta, can you do that for us? Yes, certainly. So uh, there was a presentation. Archbishop Lori had to leave a bit early. Um, so yesterday he gave a presentation about walking with moms in need, and that's, you know, the bishop's effort to provide material resources to mothers who, you know, are, are in difficulties where, you know, maybe abortion feels like an option for them. Um, and so, you know, they're seeking help, and the church, the different parishes, the diocese are, are trying to provide that for them, are trying to provide the support that they need. Um, and it was a beautiful presentation, and he had this message of, I think Jonathan <laughs> used the words of it, it was radical solidarity, right, with, with the mothers in these circumstances, and just, you know, addressing all these surrounding material issues to make abortion unthinkable, to make it so that, you know, they are empowered to choose life. Um, and so that was, I think, very, like, very popular presentation. It seems like it's been a continued theme throughout this, these past couple days. I think the bishops have really embraced that idea and, and talked about um, that need to address the, the material circumstances. And to also they talk about, you know, their words matching their deeds, right? So talking about the pro-life stance, but also accompanying the person and addressing it on that level, saying, like, okay, what, what does the person need? What can we provide, practically speaking? Um, so that's, that's been a huge part of, of all the discussions of the post-Dobbs um, approach here. Jonathan, you wrote before the conference, so last week you wrote a piece about 
uh, you know, kind of teeing up what are our expectations or what might our expectations be for the bishops going forward? Do you feel like you've um, gleaned something from these discussions or from your one-on-ones with the bishops in terms of what their plan might be going forward? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, Loretta laid it out pretty well. I think the bishops I talked to, including Archbishop Joseph Nauman from the Archdiocese of Kansas City, a former head of the Pro-Life Committee, uh, and then also this afternoon, Archbishop uh, Coakley from Oklahoma City, who's the head of the Domestic Policy uh, Committee for the USCCB. Both of them, I think, were obviously excited about the overturning of, of Roe and what that means for the pro-life movement already, the impact we're seeing in terms of lives being saved, the rate of abortion down 6%. And I think they're also excited, really, about the opportunity uh, to, to kind of present, uh, you know, this kind of integrated vision of Catholic social teaching. You know, abortion, as the bishops have said, addressing it is the preeminent priority because it attacks the most innocent among us. It, 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 it you know, it creates violence, uh, you know, in this relationship between a mother and her child. And, it, and it's done on such a, a massive scale that, it's, you know, the bishops have affirmed it's the preeminent priority. And I think what they're, they're indicating by this approach isn't that, you know, something else has become a, a preeminent priority, but that in the post-row landscape, the way we address abortion and the way we build a culture of life is by, you know, thinking about how economic issues, family issues, immigration, how all of these play into, um, you know, the, a woman's ability to choose life, a family's ability to be a place where children can be welcomed. Uh, and, you know, so I think it's, I think sometimes, uh, you know, the bishops I talk to, there's a sense in which uh, they, they don't like it when, the sort of social justice and the pro-life elements of the church's social teaching are kind of split apart. And so I think they're excited for the opportunity uh, in this climate to try to advocate uh, in this way and to try to help people uh, connect the dots and see the connection really, um, you know, between these two elements of Catholic social teaching, but really just the entirety of the church's uh, social teaching and its emphasis on life. Yeah, one of the uh, occasions where all of that became very clear, I thought, Jonathan, was in the discussions on faithful citizenship, uh, where we, we really were treated to a variety of different opinions, and yet all of them seemed kind of, on a, a, they reached a consensus of sorts about how to proceed with a document that's clearly badly needed uh, politically and socially. Would you agree? Yeah, of course. Uh, the document forming consciences for faithful citizenship is the bishop's teaching resource, uh, which, of course, really is prominent during election season when we're electing a president. But I, I think they, there were some voices emphasizing today that faithful citizenship is something we're called to do every day. But there's also been a sense, and we heard it from the floor a number of times today, uh, the document really has not been considerably revised since it was produced in the early 2000s. And so, you know, there are different issues that have come to greater prominence. Others have maybe been addressed. Uh, just different things to consider. And so I do know that, you know, it's kind of been like an elephant in the room, uh, because I think many bishops, from whatever their particular emphasis, theological or socially, might be, recognize the need to address this document. But given maybe some of the divisions that we've seen in the conference in recent years, there's a sense that opening the document up for kind of a full-scale debate and revision would just uh, create a lot of controversy and a lot of conflict. So I think the, the hybrid option, so to speak, that the bishops arrived at today, uh, it kind of does, does multiple things at the same time. 
one, it, it recognizes the need to kind of formally revisit uh, and revise and reissue forming consciences for faithful citizenship, but also recognizes that that, that will take time to do. It's not something you could just turn around and have done uh, in a year. Um, so what the bishops are going to do is they're going to, uh, you know, as they did similarly for the 2020 election, produce an introductory note that really incorporates uh, some of the recent uh, emphases of Pope Francis's magisterial teaching. Uh, you know, we can think of documents like Fratelli Tutti, uh, but then they will focus on, really, for the 2028 election, uh, which seems like a, a long ways away, uh, and there were some complaints about that from the bishops, that we need to do this more immediately. We need to incorporate Pope Francis's social teaching more completely into this document. But the, the focus is, yeah, to have uh, a version of Forming Consciences for Faithful Citizenship that's been updated, ready to go in 2028, and something I'm excited about is I think the bishops are viewing this as an opportunity, not just to kind of produce the same old document, but just an updated version, but they talked about the need to develop video resources and social media mm-hmm. and all sorts of other opportunities to explain uh, the church's social teaching to the faithful. We, of course, live in, in a country where, where so many Catholics, um, they think either like Republicans or Democrats, but maybe not first and foremost as Catholics on the issues. We talk about Catholic social teaching as our best-kept secret. So I think, uh, yeah, the, what, what the bishops arrived at uh, seems to be uh, something that addresses the need for some changes in the immediate term, but then also really an investment in uh, forming consciences for faithful citizenship going forward. It sounds realistic. I want to bring Loretta in for um, a, a brief conversation, a brief comment on the marriage catechumenate. I think this for some, feels like another way of reaching um, out to Catholics and helping form them and bringing them along in faith uh, so that it affects the rest of their lives. Um, but others have said that the catechumenate is, is uh, you know, making it a longer process of, of uh, preparation for marriage could be detrimental. Um, the bishops haven't yet discussed that because uh, it will be a Thursday discussion and, and we're having this conversation Wednesday, but you have talked to people about it, Loretta. What what are the comments? Yeah, I've heard some really interesting thoughts about this. So it seems like all the bishops I've talked to, frankly, um, are in agreement that the Church needs to do more for, for people getting married, for engaged couples, and even a, a few of the bishops, actually, that I spoke to talked about the Church needs to, to talk more about the vocation of marriage. They talked about, uh, one of them talked about just seeing declining rates of, of folks getting married and seeing that many, um, you know, weren't even thinking about the vocation of marriage. And, and so they talked about, you know, more discussion of it and more discussion of it as a vocation. And so they, they did, um, you know, they did say, like, the implementation of this will vary by diocese, and they understood some of the hesitations surrounding, you know, an, a year of preparation there. But, you know, some of them made the point to me as well that um, you have so many years to prepare for the vocation of the priesthood, and nowadays many couples certainly take, you know, their time discerning marriage. And um, so it is an issue where... Um, People often, you know, can can take that time and and do a formation process where there's a lot of, of thought and really a discussion. They talked about a discussion of self-sacrifice, 
and giving of yourself in this vocation and thinking about it in those terms and how that can be the foundation for strong Catholic marriages and strong Catholic families. And so I was very impressed, actually, by the bishop's thoughts on this, because it was clear that they have taken this very seriously, and they, they just see the need for more discussion of this. Well, that's great, Loretta, and we look forward to your reporting on this. I mean, you're there now, so you haven't had a chance to write particularly on this theme, but I know that story will come um, in due time. So I'm glad that you were asking about that very important topic. Jonathan, as we kind of reached the end of our time on the show, I wanted to talk about something very important, which is the um, the outgoing president and the nuncio. I mean, we really mm-hmm. didn't um, we didn't acknowledge them. Archbishop Gomez is leaving. He gave a speech as the final uh, his final speech as president, and of course, um, uh, Archbishop Christophe Pierre, who's the papal nuncio for the U.S., gave a speech. Are there takeaways from those speeches? Yeah, there are, and I think that you know they actually had some things in common. They played off each other pretty well and you know it might be a cliche to say it but i think at the heart of both of them was the the significance of evangelization so archbishop christophe pierre who of course is the papal nuncio who speaks to the u.s bishops as the representative of pope francis expressed his the closeness of the pope to the bishops and he really in in kind of encouraging the u.s bishops to think about where they are their priorities the priorities of the church that they are trying to impart he actually kind of took us on a, a bit of a time travel. It took us back to Pope Francis's very first apostolic exhortation, Evangelii Gaudium, and he really just kind of highlighted, uh, you know, kind of put the, Pope Francis's mission in this uh, evangelistic key. And he said he he cited an interview that Pope Francis gave in 2013 when he said, Evan- "Evangelizing, in fact, is the grace and vocation proper to the Church, her deepest identity." She exists to evangelize. So he encouraged uh, all the bishops to view priorities in the U.S. Church, like the the Eucharistic Revival, but also the Church Universal, such as the Synod on Synodality, in this key of evangelization, the Church going outside of herself, encountering others, and welcoming them into relationship with God and His people. And I think Archbishop uh, Gomez as well. uh, You know, Archbishop Gomez, I think, always impresses me with with his deep spirituality. And I think his outgoing talk um, was one that was really characterized by, I think, a recognition of, quite frankly, the, the forces of darkness out there, the challenges of secularization, but also just a profound confidence in the Holy Spirit, in God, uh, and that ultimately, you know, what what we all need to do, the only thing we can do really is not, not some new policy or program, but is to grow in holiness and become saints and to evangelize a world uh, in, in desperate need of the love of God. So, Jonathan, you know, you mentioned sanctity and evangelization, and of course they did talk about saints uh, and causes. Those, are, I wish we could have got to them in this show, but we will talk about them in another segment because they're very exciting to focus on uh, new causes, and, and these um, ones that came to the floor were very important and very interesting. But I appreciate mm-hmm. all that all that you guys have done on the ground there. Thank you for taking this time on a very busy day. And to our listeners, I encourage you to go to ncregister.com. There's a lot of coverage this week on the conference, Uh, many of them short pieces. You can take them in bite sizes. So for more news, analysis, and commentary, check out the National Catholic Register online. Thanks for joining us on Register Radio and EWTN. For Matthew Bunsen and our producer, Jeff Burson, I'm Jeanette DeMello, and until next week, I pray God bless you.